Hi everybody and welcome to the second part of this City Bites podcast on Bonington Square. In our last episode, we spoke to Todd, James and Alistair who squatted the square in the early 80s. They told us how they first got there. So I, I turned up and there were five of us. There was one couple who knew each other, but the rest, we didn't know each other and I'd never met any of them before. This was a pretty crisp sort of November day and we sort of broke in. Uh, it was in the dead of night. We didn't get caught, it was so easy. We also found out how Bonington Square became a community of like-minded people. A community started to develop, which I suppose is quite a, you know, quite an unusual thing in a, in a city for you to be able to select the people that you live with, you know, and to or you know, kind of self-select yourself a community. Generally, you just move into a house, and whoever your neighbours are, you know, that's who your neighbours are. And this community really changed the neighbourhood, pioneering new ways of urban living just a mile away from Westminster. Through the occupation of that physical space, all sorts of ideas gestated. We would, were doing things like having art festivals, having a policy of cooking in the cafe without wasting any food, or kind of gorilla planting of you know flowers and trees around the square. By the end of the 80s, squatting became less prevalent in the area. Some of the squatters had left, and others joined housing cooperatives to become legitimate residents. And a new era began for Bonington Square. In the second part of the show, we'll try to understand how the square evolved and the community developed from the 90s until today. We'll speak to Claire, who revived the community cafe, At the time, it was a little bit like we were seen as the new wave and a little bit criticised because we were actually making a bit of money out of it, not a lot of money. So we used to do three courses for three pounds, actually, massive portions. We'll hear from the Marin family who fled Colombia as refugees and were relocated to Bonington Square. There was a friend who saw us on the news and then he said, I don't want that your children are grow up in this area because it's no good. And we are trying to refer you to my place because I live in Bonington Square and this is a paradise. Finally, Yahil will tell us what happened that day in June 2005 when Vine Lodge, the last house to be squatted on the square, was put for sale at an auction house. The Vine Lodge was 31 on the list. So we had some time. The sale of each house took two, three minutes on average. A couple of minutes in which a house became no more than a race of figures, sums of money thrown into the air. A couple of minutes and dreams made or shattered. A couple of minutes in which little histories ended and others began. For houses, streets and people. All of this and more in just a moment. Open your eyes. Open your ears. This is Eyes and Ears. I am your host, Nicolas Bouchon, and this is City Bites from Eyes and Ears, a podcast revealing the told stories of the city's most interesting buildings and neighborhoods. Thank you.
Part 2 A Unique Neighborhood By 1988, most of the houses owned by the GLC had been sold on, and the squatters who had decided to stay on via the housing co-ops were becoming legitimate residents. The milk bar and the cultural center had shut by that point, but it was a second wave of new and fresh initiatives around the square. The cafe was still going, but rapidly deteriorating. But by the time we kind of came along, it wasn't being very well used. So it was very tumble down. I mean, when we started doing it, there were holes in the kitchen floor and the ceiling was held up by the blacks that went to the light in the middle of the, And it was, um, yeah, basically quite tumbly down, didn't have hardly anything that you needed. This is Claire. Claire and her friend Vic had just finished university. They were both living in Vauxhall Cross and spent a lot of time around Burlington Square. We kind of stumbled across the square and I was just immediately fascinated. I asked Claire to describe the atmosphere of Burlington Square at the time. Well, it was sort of a mix of bohemia and anarchy, I suppose. You told me the neighbourhood felt a bit like an anomaly, just a mile away from Westminster. One winter, I remember, back in the 80s, there was an old dairy in the middle of the square, which has now been, it's flats there now, and the travellers were there. Um, and it was it was kind of, you know, as I say, you just wouldn't really imagine those kind of scenes in that part of London to this day, this uh, these days, because, I mean, Vauxhall has um, transformed. So, I mean, it was kind of, so you had that kind of, you had a bit of a, an edge to it, and a, and a, but also the people were planting gardens. I mean, the, the square to this day, it's so beautiful with all the plants in the streets and the trees. So Claire and Vic started doing afternoon tea in the cafe on Sundays. They would sell tea and scones to raise money for Action Ed, a charity. Encouraged by the success of the afternoon tea, they started running a weekly night at the cafe. Vic and I started doing it in about 1988, every Thursday night, and we did it for about three years. And we had such a laugh. It was it was just extraordinary. I've never had so much fun, really, in my life. But at the time, it was a little bit like we were seen as the new wave and a little bit criticised because we were actually making a bit of money out of it, not a lot of money. So we used to do three courses for three pounds, actually, massive portions. Just like Alistair and all the previous cooks, Claire was going to the nearby Covent Garden market to sort the vegetables which were going to waste. I used to go on my bike with courier bags to begin with, but then uh, my boyfriend made me a bicycle trailer, so I used to put that on the back of the bike and I'd cycle around the skips and the security guards would be trying to catch me and I'd see him walking along and I'd be very nonchalant, just continue putting stuff in my trailer right until the last minute, at which point I'd hop on the bike and cycle away and they couldn't catch me. <laughs> But over time, it became really difficult to plan ahead without knowing where we'd be in the skips any given day. So Claire and Vic stopped going to the market. They started going to Brixton Market instead to source the vegetables. Thursday nights became really popular and it helped to revive the cafe. Local residents, nurses, also people coming from the homeless shelter and friends would queue to get a seat and Claire and Vic would serve over 40 people on a busy night. Music bands would also play sometimes, attracting a young clientele. And soon enough, other cooks started using the cafe on other nights, and it became vibrant again, just like the early 80s. Running a night at the Bennington Square Cafe was fun, although challenging and unexpected at times. Claire remembers one specific anecdote. 
there was the day we turned up and somebody else had squatted the cafe so uh, um, and he was busy burning everything in the cafe so a bit ashamed to have to say it but we called the police there was a beautiful picture of a Gainsborough picture of well a retread of a Gainsborough picture of this lovely woman and she was holding a crowbar and he he burned that this was the very picture that was painted by Alison back at the start of the cafe the lady with the crowbar it was the spirit of the cafe since the opening in the early 80s and sadly now the picture was lost Claire never lived in the square. She worked in the cafe and her boyfriend, Rhino, was squatting one of the houses, so she spent a lot of time there. I was interested to get an outsider point of view, her opinion on the square. What was the place like in the late 80s? Instead, she told me an anecdote, which I think sums up perfectly the free spirit of Bonington Square at the time. I remember one day I went to work um, from... Reiner's house I was working as a cycle courier and I went to work in the morning and I came back I mean there were a lot of builders in the street at this time because of the um, housing associations and housing courts or whatever but I came back and he had knocked two rooms into one just while I'd been at work <laughs> he borrowed a couple of acros off the builders knocked the balls down put a beam up and knocked yeah knocked two rooms into one didn't even know that he was going to do that that morning when he got up he never said oh I'm going to knock two rooms into one today but when I came home that's what he had done it was just you know a level of freedom and creativity and fun I think young people are probably missing out on these days we were so 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 lucky Um, to have had those experiences and done those things. And people who probably were a little bit eccentric and not and hadn't really got a place in the rest of the world felt completely at home in Bonington Square. In 1994... Another wave of tree planting started in the neighbourhood. The Bonington Square Association submitted a grant application to start developing the community garden. The initial efforts to plant in this bomb site that had become a wasteland started about a decade ago, but were largely unsuccessful. The corner had been turned into a pretty green playground. But this time, the budget was granted, and James Fraser, who we talked to in the first part of this show, along with two other residents, Evan English and Dan Pearson, worked together to build the garden. James, Evan and Dan created a unique mix of the classic English and the exotic tropical. There is a walnut tree, a banana tree, a bamboo, with some very original adornments. A giant white hand sculpture invites people passing by into the quiet garden. A boat also floats on the top of a pergola, An enormous industrial wheel from the 1860s has been placed at the back end. This big piece of engineering from the Industrial Revolution was rescued from a nearby marble factory. And as it's stated on the entry sign, legend has it that once a year the wheel turns, bringing forth beautiful crystal clear champagne from the world below. James told me that there is a rich diversity of species around the neighbourhood. We tried to mix it so there was a huge interest and variety. Among these species planted in the square were harlequin glory bower, toothed lancewood, Mediterranean cypress, mimosa, 
and black locust. These are not the kind of trees planted in the streets of London, even today. The residents became more invested and responsible for this new and greener environment. People, they adopted the trees and they obviously looked after them and, and would go out and water. And there was a hardcore, especially, who would you know, make sure that jobs were done. The locals also worked hand in hand with the council to maintain the area. At one point, they designated Bonington Square and Vauxhall Grove a park, which meant that maintenance schedule was, was different to normal streets. This has allowed trees to be pruned according to their species to ensure they can grow and stay healthy. It's one of the reasons why Bonington Square looks so different from most London neighbourhoods. Co-op evolved to and accepted new members over the years. Among them was the Marin family, who sought asylum in the UK after fleeing Colombia in 1989. I spoke to Amparo, the mother, and her daughter Camilla. We have to leave Colombia as refugees uh, because my husband was kidnapped by the army and, and he was tortured and then uh, two bullets in his head. He survived. This is the mother, Amparo. Since the 1960s, Colombia has been troubled by conflicts between various factions and the government. Amparo's husband, Guillermo, was part of the M19, a political movement who fought for democracy in Colombia. The kidnapping happened in April 1986, and after that, the family had to leave the country. The, the case was very internationally and nationally exposed, and then Amnesty Amnesty International helped us to, to come to England. We came to England in 1987. Uh, we applied for asylum. We get the uh, full refugee status almost immediately. The Marin family first stayed in a hostel on Brixton Hill before being moved to flats in an estate near Vauxhall Park. But they had a terrible experience there. They faced bullying and discrimination. But one day... They got a phone call from a friend. There was a friend who saw us on the news, uh, news at 10, with the story of Guillermo, the story of what's happening in Colombia. And then he said, I don't want that you children are grow up in this area because it's no good. And we are trying to refer you to my place because I live in Bonington Square and this is a paradise. That phone call changed everything. Amparo, Guillermo and their two children were accepted within the co-op and they moved to Bonington Square straight away in 1989. He said, we are taking you to the paradise and we just see that this is a paradise. We are happy in this area. We are joining the co-op from the beginning because we have to attend to meetings regularly every month and then a general meeting as well. We are very integrated to community and also because there is a cafe and there is a shop and everybody see each other on the streets and festivals. We are making festivals every year. Um, there are many, many events in the square who make people to live comfortable in the area. The family quickly integrated the community. Amparo cooked in a cafe for some time and her sons were involved in digging the holes to plant the trees around the square. 
Amparo's daughter, Camilla, was born in 1992 and has lived in the square ever since. I was curious and asked her what it was like growing up in Bonington Square in the 90s. My, my childhood was really free. I grew up with, you know, quite a lot of children that were children of co-op members. There was a group of about 10 of us, I would say. And um, I just remember it being very free, very adventurous and safe. So we would play outside in the road, on skateboards, or we would um, play in the in the two parks that we have here. So the community garden, but also the pleasure garden. I feel really blessed in that sense that I was able to explore nature and um, play until 10 p.m. at night on summer days and you know because someone's mum would be looking out for us you know you'd get a, a random shout through the window so there was always somebody watching out for us. She was helping a group of local residents handing out petitions to stop a redevelopment project which was planning to transform the corner shop building where the Italian deli is today, into a new three to four storeys building. The petition was successful. She was also part of a group who lobbied the Vauxhall MP, Kate Hurley, to close the access from Halliford Road to Vauxhall Grove, following an accident where a car hit a pedestrian in the neighbourhood. After working at a human rights organisation, Camilla now works for the trade union movement of low-paid workers in London. Alongside her family's history, she thinks growing up in the square had a significant influence on her. The activism that I've had as a Bonington Square resident has definitely kind of motivated me in my future activist endeavours. Coming from such a community-based environment, you know, thinking about your neighbours and your community being at the forefront. Today, Camilla is part of a young generation of co-op members. She attends all meetings and actively participates in shaping and supporting the community with fresh new ideas. This new generation, mostly children of older co-op members, ensures the continuity of the Vine Housing Cooperative that has been one of the driving forces to make the neighbourhood this little paradise, as Amparo described it earlier. And when I ask Camilla how long she plans to stay in Burlington Square? Forever. Yeah, I hope so. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed, hopefully, yeah. I don't ever want to move from here, to be honest. <laughs> About 20 members of the housing cooperative who still live in the square today were squatters from the early 80s. Other houses were sold on the property market to private owners, while a few were bought by former squatters by our private housing co-ops over time. While the squatting ethos remained very prevalent, squatting progressively became something of the past in Burlington Square. In the 90s and the 2000s, there were short-term opportunities for young people to squat empty flats in the area, but these remain quite rare. In 2005, Almost 25 years after James Fraser, who we talked to earlier on this podcast, first broke in Vine Lodge, a group of young people started squatting the oldest house of the square. The current tenant had lost a long-lasting legal battle with the housing association who owned the house, and Vine Lodge was going to be sold. It was simply too much work required to renovate the house, and the housing association didn't have any other options. 
In his group of young people was Yahail Wolak, who was working in Bonington Cafe at the time and had been squatting for several years in South London. When he heard that Vine Lodge was going to be empty for several months, he just couldn't miss that opportunity. It was a house that always, you know, always attracted me, always looked like there's an interesting story behind it. So it was impossible to miss it when you were on the square and when, when I worked in Bonington Cafe. There was something really magical about it. It always reminded me of an animal, some kind of an armadillo. Something about the shape was very unusual. It was clearly run down, but it still had a lot of charm. And there was, yeah, there was a real character in the sense that you could almost imagine it as a person or as an animal. And at the same time, there was something solemn about it. There was something kind of not, I didn't see the windows open. I didn't see people going in and out. So it was clearly some mystery around it, uh, uh, which often is with these kind of empty or half empty houses. So, of course, when I heard that it's being vacated and it will stand empty for a while, then it was uh, very exciting <laughs> news. The resident left the property and Yahil and his group of friends moved in Vine Lodge. They knew that their stay would only be temporary, as the house was going to be sold. Soon enough, a flurry of people came around the house, taking pictures and wanting to have a closer look. The property had just been listed by an auction house, and some prospective buyers were doing their homework. People from the area, property developers, some were friendlier than others. Yahil and the other squatters had to arrange a viewing for all potential buyers to come in and see the inside of the house during one weekend. And two weeks after that, the auction was set to take place. It was a Monday morning and Yahil decided to go. He wanted to see who would buy the house to try to negotiate to stay a little more while the owner would be getting planning permission and organizing work to renovate the house. He was also curious and he wanted to better understand how the auction process worked. That afternoon, coming back from the auction house, Yahil wrote a blog post narrating what had just happened. Vine Lodge had been sold, one of the first houses to be squatted in the square and one of the last to go. I asked him if he would be willing to read out his piece on this podcast 15 years after he had written it and he kindly accepted. The names have been changed but the entire story is there, narrated by one of the last squatters of Burlington Square. The hotel where the auction was taking place was in Grosvenor Square, 50 metres from the heavily guarded Stalinist building of the US Embassy. I locked my bike and made my way through the lobby to the ballroom. It was packed with people. In the room, I saw the people who came to see the house in the last two weeks. Some of these were developers, but also couples and families, some of them from the square. At the back was Sasha, the Italian guy, who fell in love with the house and came with his friends at least four times. We liked him. He had warm, dreamy eyes, and he wasn't a developer. We really wanted him to buy the house. Vine Lodge was 31 on the list, so we had some time. The sale of each house took two, three minutes on average. A couple of minutes in which a house became no more than a race of figures, sums of money thrown into the air. A couple of minutes and dreams made or shattered. 
couple of minutes in which little histories ended and others began, for houses, streets, and people. The auctioneer, in his affected, half-apologizing and humble manner, tried his best to keep a convivial mood to hide the crudeness of this game, in which money is all that matters. He was, I had to admit, very good at it. It was as if he was a sports reporter, juggling between different bidders. One of his techniques to create drama and to raise the price as quickly as possible was to set a duel between two bidders. He would ignore all the other people trying to bid and make it into a tennis match. These duels were so exciting that I forgot this game is actually about houses, about London and the way people live. Charlotte, who we knew from the square, stood next to us. She was going to try and buy the house. The other couple from the square told me they'd go up to 510. I've got a bit more, she said, but not much more. She looked nervous. Suddenly, it was number 31. This is 85 Bonington Square, an extraordinary house in a unique and beautiful square. The auctioneer cleared his throat. Before we get to the bidding, I have to announce that this property is squatted. Whether the squatters will move out or not before completion of the sale is unclear. So this property is sold subject to squatters being in the property. For a second, I thought he might point to us and say, and as a special surprise for you tonight, here in this room, ladies and gentlemen, let's give a warm welcome to the squatters of Vine Lodge. He didn't. Instead, we suddenly heard a strong voice from the back. What is the legal situation of plot number 84? You are selling it with a house, but the land is not registered on your name. I turned back and saw Sasha, the Italian guy. I don't care, the auctioneer cut Sasha's question in halfway. Suddenly, the convivial manner made way to a rude and aggressive attitude. I don't care what you have to say. Either you bid or you leave. Sasha tried to say something, but the auctioneer didn't let him. Get out. You're not going to bid, so get out of here. Go home. I know you. You're from the square. Get out. I've seen you in the square. He must have thought that Sasha was one of our friends, an activist who came to sabotage the sale. A minute ago, he was talking about the unique and beautiful square. And now it seemed like being from the square meant being a dodgy troublemaker. For a brief moment, the disobedient and anarchist history of the square came to haunt this temple of speculation. The auction started at 400,000. In breathtaking speed, it climbed up to 500,000. Charlotte, next to us, didn't even have a chance to raise her hand once. Now it became a war between a developer in the third row to a melancholic man standing to our left. Have you checked the legalities? The auctioneer asked the developer. The developer made a contemptuous hand gesture. You've not even seen the house, right? The developer nodded. Of course not. What for? That's the bidders I like, said the auctioneer and continued calling the numbers. It was 541,000 and the man on the left gave up. 
Sure, said the auctioneer. You might be lucky. Maybe just one thousand more. The sad-looking, pale and grey man hesitated for a second, then shook his head. We were left with the developer. What happened to Sasha, I wondered, and what about Nathan and Laura, the family from the square that wanted to buy it? Laura even told us that we could stay for a good while if they buy the house, and that they're in no hurry to move in. But maybe the price has gone up too high for her. It was then that Laura raised her hand. She was standing at the back the whole time, with someone that looked like her brother, or was not lost. And that gentleman on the back, I see, decided to bid after all. Sasha was also bidding. The price was still going up and up, around 580000 The developer gave up. He consulted with his friend and then shook his head. Now the war was between Sasha and Laura. It took me a few more minutes to realize the developers were out of the game. It was Laura who won. The closing price was £650,000. We went up to the winners to congratulate them. Don't worry, they said. We'll sort out our plans and come to talk with you in the next few days. As we left the ballroom, we saw the developer with a cycle courier outfit that harassed us last week living with a grumpy face. And just like that, Fine Lodge had been sold, but not to a property developer who could have demolished it to build something new and tasteless. It had been sold to local residents. And a couple of months later, the new owners asked Yahail and his friends to vacate the property. And just like that, it was the end of squatting in Burlington Square. Forty years after Todd, James and Alistair, who we talked to in the first part of this show, arrived to Burlington Square, the area has gone through a lot of changes, but thanks to the work of the housing co-ops and its founding members, it has managed to keep this unique character. A sense of community, freedom and creativity at the very core of the squatting ethos, which has prevailed over the years. Living in the square has been a life-changing experience for many of the people I talked to, especially for Todd, James and Alistair. Alistair left Bonington Square at the end of the 80s, but he told me he never really managed to escape it. He has always tried to live within similar communities, in New Zealand, where he spent several years, and in Bristol, where he lives today. The energy that was in Bonington Square and all the ideas that were being exchanged almost unconsciously amongst us because we were just kind of getting on with our lives doing stuff. You know, I know over the years it's had a massive influence on a lot of people. Just kind of, you know, it's a crucible of ideas and activities. And, I, you know, I, I've got to say I do, I really like that. I Kind of, you know, death before the suburbs for me. When the co-op started to be formed, Todd decided to move on, to pursue another project, building a house only using materials found in the skip, and then sell it, to use the proceeds to support the oppressed communities in Nicaragua. After the project ended and the house was sold, Todd left London. 
He now lives close to the Welsh border. He remembers fondly the size of the years. I mean, it's interesting when you look, looking back, for me, looking back now, you know, how much of the things that you've seemed to have happened in your life seem to have happened in those few years. I mean, I do constantly go back to that in my mind, you know, the things that happened in that time. Yeah, it was an amazing, it was an amazing thing. I mean, I can't imagine how different... If I, you know, if if my, if I'd been in a sort of isolated living situations through all that time, yeah, my life, my life would have been completely different, I suppose. Yeah. James has not left. He still lives in the square, and he's a proud founding member of the Vine Housing Co-op. He has seen his trees grow, and Vauxhall change from an industrial area full of empty houses and disused factories to a grove of high-rise buildings. But he remains very attached to Bunnington Square. Long may it live and, you know, long may the trees survive. Long may it remain a, a, a basically vibrant community. And it's a great example of what can be done when people work together. Um, I mean, it's sort of, it got cosier and comfortable, particularly in the last 20 years, probably. You know, and the trees have grown and it's lovely sort of sitting out there in the twilights and looking after the trees, you know, because that's for me the, you know, the, the one thing that I was involved in. And, you know, I hope to be part of it in that sense until the day I die, you know. Do you remember the painting of the lady with the crowbar which sadly burnt in a cafe? Well, it has recently been repainted by Alison, who had done the original back in the 1980s. The community organized a fundraiser event at the cafe in January 2020, just before the pandemic hit London. Many of the cooks, waiters and squatters who worked and ate there over the years gathered on the cold winter night and the lady with the crowbar was put back on its wall to great celebration. She is now presiding over a new crowd of dinner-goers and locals, quietly sat in her elegant yellow dress, reminding everyone how it all started 40 years ago. Thank you so much for listening to this two-part episode of City Bites on Bonington Square. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you want to see some pictures of the lady with the crowbar, the square and the places we talked about on this episode, please follow the link in the description. I would like to thank everyone who kindly accepted to share their stories with me. Robert Todd, James Fraser, Alistair Oldham, Ruth Morgan, Claire Kirby, Amparo and Camilla Marin, and Yahil Wallach. Thanks to Catchling Hastings for all the support. The theme song and the music of this episode was composed by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like this show, please subscribe to City Bites on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We will be back with more stories about buildings, places, and people. Goodbye for now.